Melody, I found it really hard to read books in the pandemic. I have no idea if that's the case for you at all or if you've just been like a reading hound. I'm in multiple book clubs and I love reading in normal times, but it took me probably two solid two months into the pandemic to pick up a book. It was just really hard to focus. I felt like I was constantly reading on a screen. And when I wasn't on a screen, I just didn't want to deal with having my brain work. Yeah, I think I was just so into politics and articles and and reading about COVID that I somehow lost books. And I've had this one book sitting on my bedside table probably for five months. And I picked it up this past weekend. And I feel like there was a reason I picked it up. It's called Tales of Two Planets. And it's basically all about inequality and climate change. And the inscription really, really struck me. It was, storytelling is stewardship. And I just think about the work that we do. We're not scientists. We're storytellers at the end of the day. And I know what moves the needle with people. And yes, it's the science, but it's also how we deliver that. And I think that that's just so relevant to the guests that we have on who might seem like a misfit because he is an artist and a storyteller. But ultimately, he is a steward for the planet and for human rights and for thinking about things differently. Yeah, even though this podcast is about sustainability, at the end of the day, it's really about people who look at the world in new and interesting ways and inspire other people to do the same. And I think there's probably no one who embodies this more than Oliver. Our next guest is Oliver Jeffers. And Oliver is first and foremost a storyteller. I feel like there's something in the Irish tradition of storytelling, his lyrical voice and prose, but he is a children's book author, an illustrator, an artist whose work is in the Brooklyn Museum. You name it, he's done it as far as art and storytelling. But I I really feel like reading that inscription of storytelling as stewardship is exactly why I'm talking to him. I've had so many thoughtful, in-depth conversations about the planet and climate change and children and how he approaches making art. And I just figured, let's put a microphone in front of him. The first time I heard Oliver speak was at The Invisible Dog, which is this incredible artist gallery space, and they host really wonderful conversations and events, or or did pre-COVID. And I was there with friends. And I think everybody just kind of fell under this Oliver spell, because he has a way of just really bringing in the audience. And you feel like you're on the edge of your seat. You feel like the way he speaks is sort of this like full body experience. He's drawing, he's talking, he's got high energy. uh, And it's, it's sort of hard not to fall under that spell. I'm Erin Alweiss. And I'm Melody Serafino. And we're the co-founders of Number 29, an agency that focuses on sustainability, design, and advancing social change. This is the Enough Podcast. This week, we know we have more than enough creativity to shape the way people see the world. And we've had enough in action of people not using their platforms to get people to care. Oliver was asked to give a TED Talk this year. Obviously, it was supposed to be in real life, but he ended up doing it virtually. And I was just so blown away because he was able to convey such complicated messages in simple, digestible language. You know, I think that Oliver is one of the most powerful speakers. His talk was incredible. It's an ode to living on planet Earth. I think it's such an important moment to hear this talk and a reminder of why we do the work we do in the first place. And it's a really good lesson in remembering we're all just living here on this incredibly beautiful planet, but we really need to protect it. 
You know, Oliver's talk stems both from a book he wrote called Here We Are, Notes for Living on Planet Earth, and then something he was inspired by, which was Apollo 11's mission to the moon 50 years ago. And Oliver saw that first image that was taken from the moon of planet Earth, and he was like, how do I get people to see the Earth in the same way, from a distance, to take it all in. So he had this insane idea that is sort of shocking he was able to pull off, and he was able to create a physical sculpture of the moon and then of the Earth, and to create what the actual represented distance would be between the moon and the Earth on New York City's High Line. So you could literally walk a distance between each of these sculptural planets to have an understanding of what it is to have this perspective looking back on this planet that we all share. And instead of filling in the names of the countries that we look back on, he just had the land masses reading, people live here, because he wanted to show that we are all the same. We're just human beings living on these masses of Earth together, and that it was actually our decision to create these borders. And what do these borders mean? I think it's so important to note, too, that Oliver's from Northern Ireland and grew up during the Troubles. And so borders, both physical and invisible, really dictated so much about his upbringing. It's not until recently did I realize just what an, an actual impact that that had on me. Um, and even to this day is that Northern Ireland is at the forefront of the news again, not for the same reasons it was when I was growing up, which was people killing each other for for political victories. But these days it's it's because of just how poorly conceived Britain's exit from Europe was and... It really, I think the Northern Ireland problem within Brexit really highlights it didn't occur to anybody outside of this tiny island what would actually happen to here. There's a border between us and mainland Europe through the Republic of Ireland. And who knows how this is going to play out? There, there's there's talk of food shortages. There's talks of this might eventually lead to United Ireland. There's all sorts of things. But I think I figured out something was amiss when I was uh, maybe 11 years old and there was a World Cup football qualifying match and the Republic of Ireland was drawn in a match against Northern Ireland and the winner would go through to the finals and it was a huge stakes game and everybody around me was saying you do not go for the country that you're in and you're a part of you go for this other country because that's how we feel not where we are Uh, I was raised as a Catholic in Northern Ireland and so therefore was taught to believe that I was Irish to believe in, in nationalism from the Irish perspective uh, and that Northern Ireland was a product of violent politics and was forced upon people and and the Northern Irish loyalists felt that they were more British than Irish and therefore they wanted Northern Ireland to win. And so, long story short, to support Northern Ireland in this game was to be anti-Irish. And it just felt like such a kerfuffle. And me at 11 years old was like, I don't know what to think. It's completely confounding me. And the next year, I was sent to a summer camp in upstate New York. And there, people were only interested in the fact that I was Irish. Nobody really knew or understood that Northern Ireland was a separate country. The, the more that I stayed away, the more that I realized that actually the two sides of the conflict here were identical to each other in every way. Same sense of humor, same influences, same weather, same postal system, same education system. Everything. They looked like each other. They had the same accent. The only thing that was different was the flags they were flying. And there was big old walls through the heart of this city to keep different 
communities away from each other. And at that point, I had, I think, one of the biggest epiphanies of my life, which is that Northern Irish politics and a lot of aggressive politics in the world is not based on who you are, but based on who you are not. I was going to say, I find it so interesting, too, that you go back to being an 11-year-old trying to explain something that's so complicated that the people you grew up with didn't understand it, Americans didn't understand it, and then you write children's books that explain complex things to maybe 11-year-olds, younger, whatever age. Do you think that there's a connection there? Am I analyzing you too much here? <laughs> I, I haven't made that connection. and uh, No, I mean, I, 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 I don't think it much matters what the author intends in many ways, because once you put a work out there and into a public domain, um, you really, as the creator, just become a spectator. But it's not a connection I'd made, actually, until you just pointed it out there now. But yeah, you're right. Maybe I've been doing this for a very long time and I'm just used to it. I mean, you make me see the world differently. Even in having this conversation, I suddenly see like borders and the borders in your brain and and how it's all melded together. And you, I think, are one of the most borderless individuals, if I can say that. Like you don't separate or delineate science from art. I think that you so expertly wed the two and distill them. And I'm so interested in... And hearing, you know, what inspires that? Yeah. About 20 years ago when I met my wife, Suzanne, she went to, she studied engineering and I studied art. And when we met each other, I told her that I, I make art for a living. And she was sort of like laughing, waiting for the, you know, well, what are you actually doing? I was like, no, I really I make art for a living. And, and we had the most fascinating conversation when she was asking, how do you get a grade in art school? Like what's right and what's wrong? How do you get a percentage? And I was going... I don't really know. I think it's about intent. Whereas in engineering school, there's very much a right and a wrong answer with actual consequences if you get a wrong answer. And, and, and I started thinking at that point, here are two extremes at the gulf of human thinking and they're the polar opposite difference of each other. Is it possible to look at them both at the same time through the same lens? And I started making art about that, which I, I don't know if there's been a dawning moment of realisation, but these days, one of the, the things that I realise is that there isn't such a big difference Science and art are absolutely dependent upon each other. Science needs emotion to govern its direction and, and art needs science as the, the practical nature in which it's made. They, they rely heavily on each other. Why we do science is based on emotional need. We see that right now is like what the world needs is as a global vaccine. So all of the scientists in the world, probably not all of them, are dedicating their, their lives to that. And, but that's a very obvious example if we look back at, at science five years ago, it was still probably being, being governed by by emotional need, by what we thought that we wanted and what we thought that we needed. And so science is not an end in itself, but the means to an end. And that begs the question then, well, what is the card on the stick then? And the card on the stick is art. It's, it's human emotion. Yeah, I think that that is what makes you one of the more conscientious artists. I know that you put a lot of thought into the books that you create. And the environment has really come up in the last many years. And I don't know if that's as a result of mm -hmm. becoming a father twice over, but I'd love to talk specifically too about here we are notes for living on planet Earth, because that one has seemed to resonate with people in such a strong way where it's talking about being human beings mm -hmm. on this one planet, talking about having no borders, you know, carbon emissions are going to affect, actually, sadly, not all of us equally, but all of us on this planet. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, is the environment something that's top of mind? Absolutely top of mind. Everything else falls far into the shadow of climate change. Let me put it this way. 
Buckminster Fuller uh, wrote this brilliant book in the late 1960s, The Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth. And in it, he suggests that if we treated our Earth as a, a spaceship, which in many ways it is, it's the vehicle in which we're all traveling, um, we would treat it much differently than we do because if you own a vehicle or a, or a machine of any kind, you know that you got to look after it. And, and we simply aren't doing that. But that was written in the 1960s and the noise and the attention span is so much shorter and sharper and angrier today that every other problem pales in comparison to the threat of climate change. And the way that I liken it is we're in a car floating through space, the engine's on fire, but we are all too busy arguing over what to play on the radio to even notice the smoke coming from the engine. And this is what I think, too, with what you do with your work. You are able to visualize and break through the noise. People are paying attention to you and the work that you're making. When you write, yes, you're a celebrated artist, but you also write children's books. So you also somehow have managed to be borderless in the art world. The book you published last year, Fate of Fausto, I highly recommend. This is my plug for it, which is about a man who believes that he owns everything on the planet. And then the ocean, after telling him that he owns the sea, the sea says, come closer. And he falls in and he drowns. So let us hope that that is a, a fate that happens to another Fausto, no names mentioned. But well, actually, people people assume that that the character in that book was based on people in real life. But it wasn't. That book was written in 2000, early 2015, before anybody in the UK with weird hair was in charge of things or anybody in the US with weird hair had even thought about running for anything. That book simply was a caricature of the Western capitalist model. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, five years later, there are two of those caricatures on either side of the Atlantic and, and one much more caricature-ish than the other. But it's not about any individual person. It's about the idea. The morals of my book are a happy added bonus rather than the point. Because I, I do think that kids can smell through thinly veiled moral lessons a mile away. I was just telling stories. But the stories that grab people tend to gravitate towards some kind of moral because the morality, whether we like it or not, is the compass by how which we govern our lives through good or through bad. But I haven't attempted to sit down and, you know, pull one over in kids like, I'm going to teach you a lesson, you're not going to know it. That has never happened. The most moralistic of my, my books ever has been Here We Are. And I just sat down and wrote about what I actually thought. And I was upfront and honest about it. I was like, here's how I think the world operates or at least should operate. And through that, I was able to break things down just into extremely simplistic terms. The simplicity piece of it, it is also, I think, accessible. Like you take these really complex ideas, especially about the planet. You're not explaining like carbon emissions and the science of it, but you're distilling it into these beautiful pictures and getting people to think about the environment and the planet. I'm curious, you know, if you could get one simplified message out about what is happening to the environment right now, what would it be? I don't think I need to get a, a message out about what's happening um, because it's pretty clear what's happening. There is weird weather occurring. I, I, I heard somebody say a couple of years ago that it, it shouldn't be called global warming. It should be called global weirding because it's just getting more extreme, more strange. There's, I don't think there's any debate about that. And there are those who would say that it's nothing to do with, with us. And it's that that I've got an issue with. Yeah. The only the only people who are telling a story that it's nothing to do with us are inherently selfish mm -hmm. because they like it as it is. They like the status quo. The only people who are saying it's nothing to do with us are probably sitting pretty comfortably with how things are and how it's been for them for a long time. 
And I think it's it's my job to try and just tell a compelling story as to what is the harm in rethinking how everything is done with climate in mind, but all of the world's systems are very, very unfair. And they have been for a significant period of time. We have forgotten community. We have forgotten our part in looking after other people. We have forgotten our part in the bigger system of everything. And I think the the single biggest message that I'm going to have for at least the next, de- next decade, probably for, for the rest of my life, is to encourage people to think about we, not me, that you're part of the system. Well, I am excited to see what wonderful things you make in this next decade. And I want to close with one question that I ask everyone, which is based on what enough is, this idea of when do you feel like you've had enough? Like, what's that moment where you're like, I'm satisfied. I am in a good place. I've had enough. I'm full. So I think the only answer that I can properly give for this is to read the poem at the back of the Fate of Fausto, which we got permission from the Kurt Vonnegut estate. Is that okay with you? I would love for you to read a poem. Okay. So this is a poem called Joe Heller by Kurt Vonnegut. And I think it sums up what the fate of Fausto was about. And it's called Joe Heller. True story, word of honor. Joseph Heller, an important and funny writer, now dead, and I were at a party given by a billionaire on Shelter Island. I said, Joe, how does it make you feel to know that our host only yesterday may have made more money than your novel Catch-22 has earned in its entire history? And Joe said, I've got something he can never have. And I said, what on earth could that be, Joe? And Joe said, the knowledge that I've got enough. Not bad. Rest in peace. I love that analogy. It's sort of terrifying, but I love the analogy that Oliver gives about us driving in a car and sort of being unaware of the fact that it's on fire. I feel like that is a perfect analogy for this moment with our planet. Because the planet is on fire? (laughs) Yes. I mean, this year alone, I feel like it's been one fire after another, one literal fire after another. It would actually be interesting to go back and look at while the fires were burning in California, what else we were talking about, that we weren't focused on that. Or for every massive climate issue that happens, like the fact that there were more hurricanes this season than in any other year on record. What else are we talking about? I feel like all of that has been overshadowed by the rest of the crazy that is this year. And yet it's such an important thing for people to know. We need to be making the connection to climate change and every challenge that we're facing right now. Inequality, fires, disease, flooding, displacement, refugees, it's intertwined. And I think Oliver is someone who truly understands that. I think one of the real takeaways is that we all have the power to share stories that make a difference. You know, no matter how big our following is, it doesn't have to be like Oliver's. But the things that we share with people resonate. And so we should make sure that we double check to make sure that they're true and also to make sure that they're inviting people in versus alienating people. It feels like that's a big lesson of 2020. I also watch his TED Talk. I mean, it's beautiful. And then I would say follow it with David Attenborough's A Life on Our Planet. And this is someone, a scientist, who has seen Earth change dramatically just in his lifetime. And I think the two together are are incredible examples of what the humanities can do to change how we advance science on this planet. 
And then think about how your work, whether it's a creative passion or professional work, could be used to make people see Earth differently. I mean, we've now talked to two guests who have really been influenced by their perception and images of the Earth in their own work. Celine mentioned that seeing these still images from NASA of Earth played such a huge role in her perception of the planet and and thinking about how we could make other people see Earth differently. You don't have to be a scientist to take on climate change. I think, as you mentioned, Erin, the humanities are such an important way and lens through which to shift perception and really inspire action. This is why we are so committed to supporting local artists in ways that we can make sure that they're able to continue doing this work, especially in a moment when I would love to be walking on the High Line through Oliver's moon and earth, but there are still other ways to be able to take in art and to be supporting arts in the humanities. I think find a way to either take in a performance, shift your mindset, and really engage in storytelling through all of the different mediums you can. Thanks for listening to Enough. As always, you can find links to Oliver's work, number 29, and the Enough newsletter in our show notes. Enough is a podcast from number 29 and Pineapple Street Studios. It's produced by Natalie Brennan and Sophie Bridges. Pineapple's executive producers are Max Linsky and Jenna Weiss-Berman. Original composition by Hannes Brown. See you next week.